Well, the uh, sermon text for this morning is from Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, and we'll be looking specifically at verses 5 through 11. Uh, we, will, uh, we will back up to the, uh, to the beginning of the chapter to give us a feel of the context here. So this will be Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Either just listen or read along to this portion of God's Word. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that which you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deeds. To those who by perseverance in doing good seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation, there will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For there is no partiality with God. The, the truth of uh, Judgment Day, uh, that last day when Christ returns and all who have ever lived stand in judgment before him, uh, used to be much more uh, prevalent in in popular culture in this country. All you have to do really is, is go to uh, the Carnegie Museum of Art and uh, go into the, uh, uh, well, various uh, times in history, uh, but you'll, you'll notice uh, all kinds of uh, examples of, of paintings about Judgment Day. Now, I'm not condoning images of, of Christ and doing that, but I'm noting that that, w that is a popular theme in, uh, in, in art in the Western world over the years. And it used to be a part of popular culture beyond that. Uh, as you know, I've, I've uh, in recent years, uh, listened to a lot of music that was, you know, recorded before I was born. In some cases, you know, before my parents were born. But um, I, I remember uh, a, a song that was popular in the 40s called It's Gonna Be a Great Day. And uh, it was actually last sung, I thought, by Barbara Streisand in a movie maybe 40 years ago. But... Uh, it's about Judgment Day, and it was a popular song, which is sort of hard to wrap your head around, that being in the top 40 today. And I think the, my point is here is that it ought to be something that people are aware of. And they are aware on some level, uh, as we've looked already in Romans. But here, 
Paul calls our attention to the judgment day because there will be a judgment day. And ignoring it or pretending that it's not coming does not make it go away. And Paul calls our attention to the fact that we will all stand in judgment and that those that he's speaking to specifically, religious people, the Jews, or, or righteous or moral Gentiles, will be judged along with everyone else. There is no out There is no free pass. And the only way to stand in that judgment is to stand in Jesus Christ. And all those who do not uh, will be condemned. And Paul is working up to uh, to in all of this, uh, in this whole chapter 2, and here he continues this theme by bringing up the judgment and our thinking of it and responding to it rightly by trusting in Christ. And we'll see this as we work our way through. First, wrath stored up in verses 5 and 6. Now last week we looked at at the first four verses of chapter 2, and there we saw Paul turn from addressing why the wrath of God is upon the Gentile world and why they needed the gospel, to now in chapter 2 addressing why Jews as well are under God's wrath and why they need the gospel too. In verses 1 through 4, Paul pointed out that although his fellow Jews would agree in condemning those Gentiles whose sins were listed at the end of chapter 1, the Jews do the same things. They wrongly think themselves to be better than Gentiles, even though they sin in the same ways. They think themselves to have immunity from consequences of sin because they are God's chosen people. But Paul pointed out that such thinking is wrong. A sin is sin, no matter who commits it. Being Jewish or considering yourself more moral than others does not remove your own sins. As Paul said in verse 3, But do you suppose this, O man, when you pass judgment on those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Paul added that, that every day we live, the Lord is kind in permitting us to live and not striking us dead and sending us to hell when we sin time and time again. He is giving people chance to repent and time to repent. And so the call there is to take advantage of his patience and his kindness and to trust and repent in Jesus as he's offered in the gospel. Well, in today's verses, Paul continues the same general theme of chapter 2, addressing how Jews and and moral people are sinners under God's wrath who need Jesus. And Paul will note how there is no partiality with God. God does not play favorites, and we are all storing up wrath for the day of judgment if we remain unrepentant. We all face judgment day. And Paul will note the difference in the lifestyles of those who are unrighteous and unrepentant, even if they are outwardly claiming religion or immunity from God's wrath, versus those who pursue God and seek to glorify him and live good and godly lives by his grace, as God has changed them inside in their salvation and in his grace of forgiveness. And in all this, Paul is showing their need of Jesus and the gift of imputed righteousness that we all need because we are all sinners 
and we are all under his just wrath, and we will all be judged. And so we need what only Christ can supply. And we begin with verses 5 and 6, where Paul points to the wrath of God uh, that the unrepentant person is storing up for judgment day by stubbornly refusing to repent. Following up on verse 4's statement about the, the patience and kindness of God and extending our lives and, and not striking us dead in judgment so that we might repent, Paul notes that this thus far they have not done that. That they have thought lightly of the riches of God's kindness and tolerance and patience, and they have squandered that time. And so Paul adds in our verses 5 and 6, because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God, who will render to each person according to his deed. Now, being religious-minded Jews and moral Gentiles, as they think about their lives and, and, and uh, live their lives as best they, they can, they think God will be pleased because they lead better lives than others. And the Jews would add, the Lord will excuse their faults due to the privilege of their status as Jews, as God's chosen people. But Paul says that their self-righteousness and their lack of repentance is condemning them. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself. Notice that he takes it into the second person here. Uh, he, this is second person singular in the Greek. So he's not speaking broadly. He's speaking directly to people. You, it's about you. It's about your stubbornness. And you are storing up wrath for yourself if you're not coming to, to repentance in Christ. And so it's a, it's a direct appeal of the gospel that he's, he's saying that they are under God's wrath and they're storing it up. If you are an unrepentant person who up to now has stubbornly refused to see the filthiness and wickedness of your own sins, you, know, you need to know that denying your sinfulness won't make God's wrath go away. Rather, you just keep accumulating wrath day by day. Now, normally... Uh, storing things up can be a good thing. You know, savings accounts are, are good. They're wise practice. But storing up in this instance is not wise. This is storing up something bad. Uh, you can maybe think of it as, as accumulating debt on a credit card. And as the months go by, you ignore the monthly bill as it comes in the mail or, or over the, the uh, internet and you continue to add to the debt. So uh, an unrepentant person continues to sin each day. And by refusing to repent, they might think that they're fine, or better than others, or however they might justify that. But the wrath of God against you continues to grow. And wrath is God's holy uh, revulsion and hatred of sin, and his judgment of it in perfect righteousness. And so when you pile up sins, you are piling up wrath. But eventually that bill will come due. And it won't be sent to a collection agency, but you will be brought before 
the God of the universe, and all that stored up wrath will be brought upon you. Notice that Paul says that stored up wrath comes due in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There will come a day, judgment day, when all those who have ever lived will stand before the holy and just God and will be judged. And it will be a day of wrath upon those who did not repent and embrace Jesus as offered in the gospel. Notice in our verse that God's judgment is righteous. It is right and good and done in perfect justice as the one true God is righteous in his being and all of his actions. In Psalm 9, verses 7 and 8, we sing, The Lord abides forever. He has established his throne for judgment. And he will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples in uprightness. And notice that God will judge according to your deeds. God will render to each person according to his deeds, Paul said. And this is a quotation uh, in part there from, from Psalm 62, verse 12. And it, will, it reminds us that we will be judged according to our deeds, according to our lives, what we have done. As we're told in, in Revelation 20, Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat upon it, from whose presence all earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. Paul's statement here in verse 6 and in John's words there in Revelation 20 should sober everyone who hears them. All will stand before the holy and just God who will render or give what you deserve to each and every person, including each and every one of you and, my, and me. And he who knows all your deeds will judge you according to those deeds. There is no special pass where Jews are excused or waved through it in the judgment because of privileged status or immunity or anything like that. No, everyone is judged. And there's no double standard. There's no cheating. There's no favorites. There is just judgment. And the standard is the same. Were you perfectly holy as our Creator is holy? And you know that the answer is no. Paul has already reminded us we are all guilty before God, Gentiles and Jews, and we are under his wrath. And that is the point of chapters 1 and 2 in the first part of 3. In 118, he said, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And that includes not just idolatrous and sinful Gentiles who rebel against their Creator, who know that, that he exists, who know that he is good, and yet they sin anyway. This is also true of Jews and moral Gentiles, who Paul says in, in verses 1 and 2 of our chapter, practice the same things, knowing that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. As Paul will later say in chapter 3, there is none righteous, not even one, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. 
For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so, whoever you are listening to this, you are a sinner. And so am I. And each and every one of us is a sinner. And Paul tells us in verses 5 and 6 that each one of us will stand before God who judges righteously and who knows all of your thoughts and words and deeds. And he will judge. Second, two classes of people in verses 7 and 10. Now here Paul describes the two types of people in the world. And surprisingly to, uh, to Paul's Jewish audience, he does not say Jews and Gentiles. The self-righteous Jew, as Paul was before he was saved, might be quick to make that division of all mankind. Well, it's, it's Jew and Gentile, right? But now, since his conversion, Paul knows the truth. And he teaches God's word. And he shows self-righteous Jews, like he once was, that the true division of mankind is not according to race, but to those who have God has changed such that they are people who glorify God and live for Him versus those who are selfish, disobey the truth, and pursue evil. And in these verses, he shows that there is an obvious difference between the believer and the unbeliever in why and how they live. Now, we need to be careful here. Paul is certainly not describing salvation by good works which is contrary to the gospel. As he will clearly state in Romans 3, 20 and 23, by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is not contradicting that truth in our verses here. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But salvation will produce good works, a soul change in the saved person. And that change will be obvious on Judgment Day. Paul writes in Ephesians 2, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. So in our verses 7 through 10, Paul points to those differences, those good works that God produces by his grace and those saved by grace. And they are contrasted with the works of the unbeliever in verses 8 and 9. John Stott writes of the judgment day that Paul mentions here, uh, and he points to it and says this, such a public occasion on which a public verdict will be given and a public sentence passed will require a public and verifiable evidence to support them. And the only public evidence available will be our works, what we have done and what we have been seen to do. The person, uh, the presence rather, or absence of saving faith in our hearts will be disclosed by the presence or absence of good works of love in our lives. The apostles Paul and James both teach this same truth, that authentic, saving faith 
invariably issues in good works, and that if it does not, it is bogus, even dead. I, by my works, will show you my faith, wrote James. And so that's important for all of us to hear, and it's important for the self-righteous Jew and Gentile to see, because they are basing their assumed superiority and immunity on their status as God's chosen or this outward morality and thinking they're better than others. But Paul points out that the true difference is a transformed life, something only God can do by his power and grace in one he is saved by grace alone. Verse 7 describes the believer, one who perseveres in, in doing good, that is, pursuing what is pleasing to God rather than sinful desires. As Paul writes in Ephesians 5, 8 through 10, For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. In our verse 7, Paul speaks of the believer pursuing glory, honor, and immortality. A glory describes how we live to praise him, here and how we look forward to living in glory with him. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10 and 31, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Honor refers to respect or recognition, and so the believer pursues a life that is honorable, that brings God's approval. True believers live life with the desire to thank the Lord who has saved him or her by his grace alone. As Jesus says in John 14 and 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. And we live life in the light of immortality, the sure hope of life with the Lord after our physical deaths, the sure promise of the resurrection to follow. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. And so these things change how we live from the very core of who we are. Paul writes the believers are given eternal life in our verse 7. And this is a promise of the gospel, of the gift of unending life in fellowship with the triune God, all by his grace to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. As Paul will later write in chapter 6, 22 and 23, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, this wonderful gift is given by God's grace alone. And Paul's point here is that there is an obvious difference in those who have been saved and changed all by God's power and to his glory. The believer lives our lives to hear the Lord say to us when we die, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. 
That is contrasted here with verses 8 and 9 with the life of the unbeliever. They are described as those who are selfishly ambitious, ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness. Notice the chief motivation of the unbeliever, selfish ambition. That there is a self-centered pursuit of what is pleasing to, to self, to them in all of their life. God is not their focus. They themselves are their focus. Notice as well that they do not obey the truth, what God has clearly revealed and declared as truth. Instead, they obey unrighteousness. And so they live lives that disregard the truth of God and what is good and what is right and pursue what is false and self-serving and unrighteous sins against others and against God. And so they receive for this wrath and indignation. The Lord God, to whom we all must answer, brings his holy and just wrath, his revulsion and judgment against sin and rebellion on those who reject him and live for themselves and disregard truth. And notice in verse 9, to whom this wrath comes. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Tribulation and distress here point to punishment and wrath brought by God upon those who do evil, for those who sin, as we will all stand before him in judgment. And there will be a judgment day. This is repeated throughout Scripture. One example from Paul's own, own, uh, own words in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10. We all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Those who have done evil and have not trusted in Jesus for forgiveness and salvation will receive the just and righteous wrath of God for their sinfulness. And notice that Paul specifies that Jews will be judged according to their deeds, just like everyone else. In fact, Jews are judged and receive God's wrath first, even before wicked Gentiles, which this statement would have blown the mind and, and still might of Jews who hear this and are trusting in their status as Jews. He says, no, in fact, you'll be judged first. This is a powerful point to the self-righteous Jew who trusts in privilege as one of God's chosen people Jews are not given immunity, but are rather judged first and held accountable first because they have the advantage of God's written word and all of the benefits of being God's covenant people, yet still reject the truth and reject living for God, reject true repentance and trust in the Messiah. As the Lord told uh, Israel in Amos 3 and 2, you only have I chosen among all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. And Gentiles, of course, are included too in our verse 9, encompassing all the peoples of the world and each individual that has ever lived. Verse 10 repeats the contrast of verse 7, 
and the difference found in those who pursue God, who live for Him, and they receive honor and glory and peace. That is wholeness and well-being. It's what peace means. In harmony with God and all people. And they again are those who do good, who demonstrate a life of good works and godliness by God's grace at work in them. That here what we see is evidence of God the Holy Spirit's work. As Jesus says in John 15, 5 and 8, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Notice the contrast then that Paul presents here and that is presented rather in in Galatians chapter 5, the the same idea. He says there, starting in verse 19, Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Commenting on our passage in Romans 2, uh, the uh, Legan Duncan says, Notice what Paul has not said. Paul has not said that this person has earned his salvation by his good deeds, nor has he said that he has earned his salvation by his aspirations, by his desires. But he has said the person who has met Christ in the gospel and embraced him by faith is a person who is characterized by these kinds of aspirations by this kind of life. He is saved by grace, but his life is transformed by that grace so that his desires are different from the world and his life is different from the world. And then he says, let me show you the ungodly. His life is centered on himself. Selfish ambition is his fundamental aspiration. He is a person who does not obey the truth but rather obeys unrighteousness. What is his end? Tribulation, trouble, distress, wrath, and indignation. Judgment is coming, and it will reveal who you are. A sinner under God's wrath, or one whose sins have been forgiven by God's grace, and whose life now shows the changes God has worked in you by his grace and by the Holy Spirit. And so third and finally, uh, the impartial God will judge in verse 11. And so Paul adds in verse 11, for there is no partiality with God. We will all be judged according to our works, be that Jew or Gentile, and God is no respecter of persons. No one is given immunity due to race or status or whatever. All uh, All will be judged in truth, and in righteousness, 
in the judgment of the God who is true and who is righteous. And God does not bend the rules. Again, in chapters 1 and 2 and the beginning of 3, Paul is telling us the bad news. And that bad news is that we are all under God's wrath. Now the good news will come, and uh, I've, I've sneaked ahead in every sermon, so it's not like going to be a surprise. But the bad news must be heard first and must be accepted, must be responded to rightly. None of us can, can earn eternal life by our works. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We will all stand before the holy and just God in judgment at our deaths and on judgment day. And we will be judged according to our deeds. That truth gives no hope as we are all guilty sinners and have earned nothing but wrath. And yet by God's grace alone, in the gospel, he offers that wonderful and glorious double exchange. The sinner being covered in the righteousness of Jesus and the wrath of God we deserve put on Jesus himself instead. That Jesus Christ is God the Son, the, the second person of the triune God, who became also fully man to be our saving substitute. And he came and obeyed all of God's laws, which we fail to do. And on the cross, he took the wrath of God due to us for our sins upon himself. He died and was buried. But on the third day, God the Father raised him from the dead and accepted sacrifice and a living Savior. And all those who trust in him are covered in his righteousness, forgiven by his sacrifice and justified by God, by his grace alone. As Paul will write in chapter 3, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now God has made known a righteousness from God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood, those who belong to Jesus and are saved by him can then face judgment day with eagerness and with confidence and without fear. On that day, Jesus Christ will judge and every person who has ever lived will be judged. For believers, our sins will be covered in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We will be, as the larger catechism says, openly acknowledged and acquitted, received into heaven, filled with inconceivable joy, and brought into the company of God the Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, and of the Holy Spirit to all eternity. Now, believers are not acquitted on the basis of our good deeds, but on the basis of Jesus' perfect righteousness that covers us. And Jesus, as we're reminded in Revelation 20 that we read earlier, because of him, because we've trusted in him, because we've been given that gift of salvation, have our names written in the book of life, the role of those saved by God's grace in Jesus Christ. So let me read again that uh, account of Judgment Day in Revelation 20 and go a little further. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. 
And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That we will be judged according to our deeds. Our sins will be covered in the righteousness of Christ. And what remains then is our good deeds, which will be publicly presented as evidence of our union with Jesus Christ. Evidence of the basis of our salvation in Jesus Christ, that we belong to him. And so all that will be seen is the righteousness of Christ covering our sins and whatever good deeds he's enabled us to accomplish by his grace and the work of the Holy Spirit in us. John writes in 1 John 4 and 17, Love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. And so our good works will be revealed, as our verses 7 and 10 say, as God-glorifying evidence of the gift of salvation and the change that He worked in us by God the Holy Spirit. Uh, The RP testimony says in, in chapter 33, paragraph 4, the final judgment for the Christian will be an assessment of his obedience to God and of his stewardship of the gifts and talents God has committed to his care. Whatever is imperfect will be burned away and his faithfulness will be rewarded. And so what a wonderful blessing we have to face judgment in anticipation of the covering of Jesus' righteousness, of acquittal as we stand before the throne of judgment, all based on what Jesus has done for you and me and glorifying God with the changes and the fruitfulness that he produced in you and the good works that you were able to do in this life by his power and to his glory. And so Paul's point is glorifying and encouraging to those in Christ. But Paul's point in in this passage ought to be sobering for anyone who does not know Christ and is trusting in your own status or privilege or morality to gain you God's approval on Judgment Day. If you are standing there based on your own deeds, you will merit only wrath. And so you need Jesus. You need to trust in Him. You need the covering of His righteousness. And you need the the gift of salvation that only He can provide. Let's pray together. Lord God, we do thank you and praise you for this portion of your word and ask that you would apply it to our hearts. We, we think on the judgment day, and that is a, a sobering thought. But we are reminded of the blessings that we have in the gospel, of the covering of the righteousness of Christ, and the real change that you've worked in us by the Holy Spirit as he has done a work in us and produced fruit so that we have evidence of belonging to you. And so we we look forward to Judgment Day, to to being uh, formally acquitted, being confirmed in the salvation that we already have as we look to that day, and glorifying in you and the works that you produced in us, the change that you produced in us, that we glorify you. We pray for those who have not trusted in Christ, 
and who are trying to ignore Judgment Day or, or think that you're going to do well because you, you, you do some things well, that you are somewhat good, that you're better than others. Pray that the, the Holy Spirit would be at work and show that, that that is not sufficient. That if that is what you are going to judgment based upon, you will be condemned. May you be convicted of your sin and your need of Jesus and the covering of His righteousness and the change that only He can produce in you. That you would trust and repent and embrace Christ by faith and know that wonderful gift of salvation by God's grace alone. And we ask these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. And now let's